You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. And in season two, Meet the Environmentalists, I will be having coffee with pioneers, game changers, leaders, and entrepreneurs who are truly making a difference in our world. I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. Hi, everyone. Dee Starling, Double Espresso with Dee here. I am delighted to have as my guest today the fabulous Tom Mustel. Tom, environmental director, producer, writer, founder of Gripping Films. I love that name. Welcome, Tom. It's great to have you. Thanks very much, Dee. It's lovely to be here. Of course. So listen, we have much to cover. You you create stories effectively with your work in some ways, right? You know, you connect people with the world and some of the burning issues of today around uh, the environment, around climate. You've made films for the BBC, for Channel 4, Channel 5, National Geographic and so forth. You've worked with many great and pioneering names among the uh, environmentalists, the conservationists, the scientists of our day, and some of the legends like David Attenborough himself. You've won many awards, including a BAFTA for your work on Nature's Giants. You, Tom, have a background in natural science, conservation biology. Where did it all start for you and what got you to film as a platform and a medium? Well, I was a, I'm a sort of accidental filmmaker. Uh, I was a conservation biologist by training, so I, I've always been interested in nature and I did a degree in zoology and then went and spent some time working in uh, tropical conservation. And it was a kind of mixture of two things. Uh, one was that I had always loved wildlife documentaries and I felt that that was why I got into nature conservation. And always at uni or working in field conservation, I would always tell my friends about what I was up to. And I loved that storytelling. And then I was also pretty lonely, I'd say, uh, sitting in a jungle waiting for birds to turn up to conserve my girlfriend dumped me because I was never coming home and I was a bit bored and I thought maybe this was not the best use of of my time. If I wanted to try and conserve uh, animals, maybe I should get into storytelling as a conservation tool rather than sitting in a forest and doing land and management. So I sort of came home and started at the bottom and got a job as a runner in a TV company making tea and coffee and and carrying things around. 24 7, probably, right? Yeah, it was late. <laughs> but that was the joy of it, you know, and it being was sort of, in the game, it, right? It was also, I had not really experienced television before then. And I worked for a TV company that made all sorts of different shows. And sometimes I had to go and get fake blood from Covent Garden. And there was a shop that sold fake blood. They had like thousands of varieties. Get a giant fiberglass shark prop from Wormwood Scrubs and carry it back at like three meters the underground brilliant right well I was like this is you know this weird job so I thought I'd give it a few years and see what happens and it's kind of snowballed a bit from there really yeah so what was the first film that you put together so the first I guess you know in tv you kind of unless you start off as a kind of independent director you often work your way up so I I spent a few years working as like a researcher and assistant producer and doing bits of production the first films I produced were the ones you do that no one asks you to do and no one pays you to do, you know, to learn the craft, like music videos. Uh, so I, they were probably the first, like, standalone things. But the first 
film I directed was Inside Nature's Giants on Channel 4, which was that series, which was incredible. We'd find gigantic animals that had sadly died, and then people would dissect them to explain their anatomy and their evolutionary story and their conservation story. And that was a, a big hit and yeah, won loads of awards like the BAFTA, but other ones too. And it was also just fascinating because we'd have multi-cameras, like a bunch of three or sometimes more cameras shooting at the same time, loads of uh, a really nice big team all together and really incredible creative challenges. Like how do you film a giant squid? When it starts off frozen and it's transparent, how do you show people what like its structure and what it's made? It's incredible, isn't it? The science behind the making of any film or documentary, right? So complex. Exactly. Often it feels like sometimes the stuff that you get home and you tell your friends or your mum about, it's <laughs> not the stuff that ends up on telly, you know. The, the <laughs> what was the biggest challenge on that production, if you recall? Wow. I mean, there were so many. Like one was how do you frost an elephant another was how do you get to a sperm whale and dissect it and that's on like sands that are sinking i think the main one was how i mean creatively like how do you engage an audience with something that might be gross but is actually fascinating you know cutting how do you do that through humans that's the way you know if you just show them the animal being cut open and often these are animal lovers doing it they're scientists and conservationists and animal lovers watching it we feel awful. We feel pain for the animal. We feel like we feel upset about, you know, the kind of butchery. But if there's a person there as your guide saying, oh, wow, this is pretty gross. But look at this. This tells us this. This is an opportunity to learn. You, you look at it through the eyes of the other human and that allows you to deal with it and to in, actually then to revel in it and to see why they are drawn to doing that and, think, uh, and the importance of it. It's almost about, in a way, it's like the power of knowledge, isn't it? the more you know, the more interesting something can become, even something that's quite complicated. And also, you can't unknow it, right? So I'm sure some of what you learned then spurred you on to some of your other adventures. I mean, it strikes me that, I mean, I grew up on a diet of film and photography. My father was a wonderful amateur photographer and had his own dark room at home. And we were always watching films in the family together. And it could be, you know, he wasn't didactic. It could be anything from Fellini right through to James Bond. He loved everything, although he was a very cerebral individual himself. And I really do think that in some ways, you know, film is like one of the greatest art forms. You know, it brings together image, it brings together movement, language, poetry, even music, and so on and so forth. So it's a, an incredible vehicle to tell stories, to share stories, you know, to connect people also to, I guess, you know, bring to a wide, wide audience the burning issues of our day right so I know and I mean you know all about the, the numbers but and you've seen it with some of your own films the number of views right but I think it's um, David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet had 500 million views worldwide right that is a very very large number um, you know you've you've made all sorts of films you've been involved in all sorts of films short and long and I'd love to come on to that and discuss that in a little bit more detail with you. But, you know, you, I guess, are use film as a powerful platform. And I've had lots of experiences in your time so far. What have you seen in direct that's changed you as a person and in how you do how you how you um, go about choosing your projects and making them happen? Wow, that's a really uh yeah, it's that's a big question. I, I guess what I've seen that makes me choose my projects is when I started out as a scientist who became a filmmaker, I felt that I 
I felt you need to do is explain things to people. And really the main thing I've learned is that people connect emotionally first and then that's how they absorb information. So the thing I look for is something that moves me and I think will move other people. And that's how, what I look for in choosing a project. And I guess slightly pragmatically, I also I look for something that I think people it has a chance of being seen because so many beautiful films are made and never get watched. So I think I kind of, I work with a couple of other directors in my company and we often have a kind of lens we use to figure out potential projects, which is, will the film do something different and innovate? Will the film be fun, enjoyable or satisfying to work on creatively or as a process? And will it have an impact? And really it has to have all of those ingredients and having an impact means not only what will it do to the people who see it and what decisions will it help them make and life changes if necessary or you know but also does it have a chance of being seen you know so fundamental right it's like writing a book no one reading it it's just what's the point right and to your first point though tom just as a query from me does that mean when you talk about innovation does that mean in a how you produce that film technologically uh you know how you shoot the equipment that you use i mean does it mean also looking at all of that as well from an innovative point of view Absolutely. I think if you want to have an impact, you've got kind of two choices. You either work within a large organisation and you find things that have worked and you do them on a larger scale using the firepower of that large organisation, or you lead from outside and you experiment and you do the quick different things that perhaps big organisations wouldn't have the, they'd be too scared to in case they failed. And so I've got a tiny company and I don't want to have a, be part of a gigantic organization at this stage so I don't want to just repeat what other people have done I want to try new things because the stakes are really high you know if you're making films about the climate and nature crisis we're not reaching many people with these stories and they're not connecting with many people so I see each film as an opportunity to try something new and if other people then imitate that if it does work that's brilliant because then we get to share the tools that we've discovered on that production. Totally. And it's almost like early mover advantage, right? If you get in, maybe you create some sort of swell and others follow, right? And it's particularly in relation to some of your work, there cannot be enough attention on some of these themes, right? And um, I guess, Tom, you know, it strikes me that some of your work is, you know, or much of it is really putting a lens on society in a way and our interactions with the world around us, you know, what we're doing in many different aspects of climate change, because it's a very, very big issue as such. You've obviously worked on lots of different films. And I know you've also shot during COVID from your room, uh, you know, I, I think with Greta Thunberg and, and George Monbiot, uh, Nature Now on how we use nature to solve the crisis. And, you know, there are many others, also Mercy for Animals with Greta Thunberg calling in for an end to animal agriculture and on and on. And I loved the... Um, the one that is referred to as a tiny film with a big idea, which is perhaps how you articulate it, but if not, forgive me, but really asking viewers across the world to take a look at how they live and how we can have a better future and, and to get them talking to one another about that. And that was, um, imagine one minute, it was called Shot for the 75 Years of United Nations, right? And I loved the voiceovers, yeah. everyone from notable Indigenous leaders through to the UN General Secretary, through to the Pope, Pope Francis himself. Um, tell me a little bit about any or all of those and 
where you started in terms of concept and where you took it and how you feel about the outcome today? Because obviously the outcome's not a static thing, right? And, you know, we have this great ability today to watch anything, anywhere, anytime, multiple times, etc. So standing back from yourself, because I guess I also think as a brief parenthesis that making a film is like creating a miracle because you know, I have a number of friends in the industry and, and it's it's a slog, isn't it? It's not an easy thing to do. And there's a very unromantic, unexciting side to filmmaking, which is a hard graft. And, you know, I always say it's not meant to be easy if it's going to have value and be of worth. But standing back, if you're able to separate yourself from these babies of yours in some respects, um, where do you see the impact today? I appreciate it's quite early on the curve for some of them. And what's your feeling having made those those films? Well, I mean, so my background is has been for until the last couple of years making one hour feature length films for traditional broadcasters like you know, BBC and Nat Geo and the other ones you, you listed. And uh, I've been writing a book for the last three years. I'm j- just finishing it in, in a week oh or so. Oh my God, amazing. That's such an achievement. Well, I mean, you have <laughs> read it, maybe. I, I'll re- read, it, read it and send it to everybody, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, so I, I guess I, I I wanted to try doing a different like creative form than filmmaking and so I took time out to write a book and then I ended up talking to George Monbiot about his and Greta's uh, and lots of other people's interest in natural climate solutions and so I'd managed to push all the filmmaking world and all the jobs away to say because I was writing this book and I thought, ah, oh, yeah, I can turn around a little short film. This is a cool topic. People will like this story. We'll do it really cheaply. We'll, you know, we'll edit it in my yeah, in my spare room, and we can. We, I mean, that was before the COVID pandemic. So actually, we took a train, the crew to Sweden, and we shot it, you know, with very zero, very low emissions. Because that's another thing I'm particularly keen on is trying to reduce the environmental impact of the process and impacts of filmmaking. And so we did that. And really, because nobody had asked me to do it. And it was very cheap. I could use loads of really interesting techniques like these things that some music video animators that I, I was into had used on a film that they'd made. And the way that we shot Greta and George talking was very immediate and personable. And the things that we asked them to talk about or that they decided to talk about were you wouldn't be allowed to on telly because they were political. They didn't just say, oh, climate change has happened as if it's this passive thing. They were like, these are the things that caused it and these are the things you can do. And instead of saying like, that you can use a different shopping bag, they were like, vote for people, join movements. You know, the actual really powerful things that individual people can do outside of their consumption habits. So, and I, I did, it was an accident really. And I, you know, and it went crazy viral. It got like, okay, it must be somewhere like over 80 million views, just the English one now. And then it played, it's because Greta was marching in New York when it came out. I think the interest in her was so How huge. How did that feel then- to you, just if we pause there? You know, that's a big number, right? I mean, what was your, because I do think there's a, you know, as a creator, obviously you have this multitude of skills and intellect and a knowledge that you apply to every project you work on, whatever that project is, be it your book, frankly, or, or, or you know, some of the longer productions you've done, etc. And to this one, which was short, but I'm sure it wasn't short <laughs> in terms of putting it together. But how does that feel when, you know, you've, you've given birth to something, you know, you and others as a team, when you get that number of views, is that a bit overwhelming or, or what sort of emotion does that evoke in you? Well, it's both kind of, you know, overwhelming in some ways, but at the same time, 
you're just still walking around having your normal life. You know, you're not, you, nobody says, oh, here's an Oscar. You don't like go to a big screening. You don't see it. It's happening in this distributed way where you just keep track of it by going to a website and seeing a number underneath the video. And then you start hearing from people and you have, and you see other people doing things that look the same, you know, which use similar techniques and you think, oh, wow. And then we heard, you know, this is having, you know, it's, it's having ripples. And I guess the main thing that made me and the rest of the team realize was the power of the internet. And that sounds really sort of cliche and maybe a bit naive, but I hadn't realized how powerful the internet was if you have a simple thing that people like and want to share. And it made me, I had always just assumed growing up where David Attenborough documentaries on BBC One were the only place you could see really beautiful in content about nature, that that's where one should continue to work. But it made me reassess slightly and think, okay, well, if if my role in the world is to try and connect people to stories about nature that will matter to them, this internet short form medium that is maybe frowned upon because it's not as big and as serious as longer cinematic or, you know, broadcast films, it has a real punch to it. And so in answer to sort of link it to your previous question in terms of, I, I spent the lockdown, or I mean, sorry, I spent the coronavirus period finishing the book and experimenting in that medium with like, imagine for one minute was like a, the, a bunch of environmental NGOs wanted to make a film for the UN summit, the general assembly, and we said, well, how about a kind of, I mean, it was a really difficult film to make because we chose every single frame in that film we chose. Like, so that, and we, we crowdsourced all of the voices, like those people you mentioned, but also every single photograph, every single person who's in it was sent to us by that person. So we made a kind of, I think we were all going a bit mad also. It was like, you know, like May of last year, the sun was shining We'd all been cooped up. We were allowed out for an hour of exercise a day. We were thinking about where do we go next? We were thinking about what does this mean? We were thinking about connection. And it was also born of not being able to do anything remotely. And every single creative agency in the world was filming someone on Zoom or getting them to film themselves and then fast cutting that together with like other user-generated materials. So we were like, how do we make something that is, will look totally different from all of those things? And then... Again, the internet surprised us. The film did all right. It did well. It was played at the UN and it got a few million views and that was great. But then a little 10 second section from this one minute long film was picked up and itself went viral in its own little standalone way. And then people made TikTok mask filters from it. People make music videos from it. it. It just had its own extra life. And that's what all of these short films we've made for online you know we've been experimenting with form one another un film we did was a poem with paintings oil paintings done uh, on top of it and they're all just trying to shake up you know the medium of environmental filmmaking which is i mean everybody knows it you can pass these shit you know it's a slow motion sad looking polar bear a bit of ice breaks off a glacier the rank near a palm oil field somebody tells you something awful's happened you feel terrible it ends maybe there's a call to action about buying something but really you just feel a bit crap and that just sort of feels like a pretty limited way to tell a world of stories i think that's right and it, it makes me reflect on the fact that um to your point people see something if we take the conventional format and, and you know, the world has changed and i don't just mean in the past year and a half like the world has changed how we do things how we communicate and on and on and on, and the immediacy, you know. I felt pre-COVID that in general the world was in a bit of a distraction crisis, and in some respects COVID was a moment of recalibration for quite a lot of people. 
you know, it was a moment of global meditation for some people in some respects without wishing to sound, you know, a bit out there because people had to literally physically stop, right? And there wasn't the endless tearing around the globe, meeting people here and there, running around any big city or whatever. So it was sometimes, wasn't it? You know, not these things that had kind of built up these habits of interaction that we wouldn't necessarily choose to have an excuse not to have to do them. I think that's correct. And I think that it gave people time to settle on Mother Earth in some respects. And also look at things like TikTok, not that I'm the world expert, I hasten to add, but TikTok really took off during COVID. It was this these fast moving visuals and, you know, the, the music and, and short, right? Just being able to absorb something which is short, the sound bites. And I think there is a move away to your point, just giving the information, keeping it short. It doesn't have to be endless hours that people have to sit and view, which still people don't necessarily feel they've got the time or they don't want to consume in the same way that perhaps was the old model. And I'm not just talking pre-COVID, I'm just talking even several years before that. But to your point, people might watch something and it's dire and they come out and they feel absolutely awful about themselves, about humanity, they're so depressed. And in fairness, if we sat and wrote on the back of a page all the different elements that need to be addressed today, everything from you know, nation states, global corporations doing the right thing, making some very, very big headline decisions, carbon taxes, green investment, uh, rewilding the land and the seas, and on and on and on, on right? Um, <laughs> it's overwhelming, right? And yeah. there have been, I'm sure different people have been touched in different ways by all the different documentaries and so forth that they have seen in this space. And there are many, and many of the highest quality. But for example, Seaspiracy encouraged a number of people to stop eating fish, etc. With some of the work that you have done, this is probably an unfair question, but have you seen um, consequences among people that contact you changes, shifts. I mean, clearly the good news, the spotlight of the world is on this theme because we are in a race. But what have you personally experienced among, you know, your universe of change through some of your work? Well, I mean, at the top level, like we've always been interested in impact production, which is where you make your film with an eye on what it can do. So I made a film about the Montreal Protocol, which is the convention on CFCs that the world uh, basically be stopped producing CFCs and we all agreed it's the most successful environmental treaty of all time and it happened in the 70s and the 80s and a report came out this week that if they hadn't done that as well as the ozone there being destroyed and us all being irradiated without its protection we would have had an extra two degrees of global warming so we'd be absolutely screwed. I mean that would be it right? Yeah it would be done it would be toast and so it might even have been 2.5 so that's terrifying but that was a film and we played that at the meeting of the Montreal Protocol, which is the name of that agreement, where they were looking to expand its remit to take in the control of a new class of atmospheric chemicals that are very damaging for climate. So that was a film that was being made to be shown to decision makers in a room to remind them of the history of what they were part of and the opportunity that they had. Like the Greta film was really... There was a version that was, we cut two versions, one to be played at, uh, to the general public and one to played two decision makers uh, with different things they could do at the end of it. And I heard from a man who worked in the UN forests that essentially until that 
film came out and I, I mean it's very possible to overstate this there's no way of knowing obviously all these people were already working with these issues and might not have needed the film to clarify or motivate them at all so this is just word of mouth it's very hard to measure but in his view the film was so successful and being so many people engaged with it meant that at that climate conference in New York it went from being the everybody only talking about energy solutions to climate change to people also talking about natural solutions to climate change and he felt that that was fundamentally a huge thing and i feel like there has been a big difference in how much people talk about trees and forestry and other carbon sinks but then at the other emotional level in terms of seeing impacts i made a short film for the ngo surface against sewage i know it's, yeah absolutely tell us about that well, so that was for a small NGO and it was for a small audience and it did, and it has this tiny budget and a tiny turnaround, but it was far more emotional. So we asked people to send us from around the UK their videos of the sea and their stories of the sea. And we just cut them together in an homage to a band called Biceps Music video for, called Glue, which is the best music video in the last few years. in my. And we just basically copied them. In the bicep one, it was people from the 90s rave scene talking about the rave scene over shots of the places they used to go raving and we just did that we had shots of the uk seas with people's uh, words about their relationship to the ocean and i've never had as many people get in touch with me and say i cried i watched it five times this really spoke to me and so at the other end so you've got like policy outcomes but you've also got like connection and emotional outcomes and it's yeah human it's a human it's really at a very fundamental human level isn't it totally and i feel like i think the we were, we were talking before about sort of depressing films and how people find it overwhelming i think because for decades it has been impossible to get to even mention problems on tv or in broadcasting a lot of filmmakers like me um, have been pushing a door that was closed. So as soon as it's opened, we have swarmed in and we've just, in our heads has been, we need to raise the alarm. We must raise the alarm. We need to tell people about this stuff. The world is in trouble, but we've got to let them know because previously we couldn't let anyone know. But n everyone knows now. You know, it's going to be very hard to find anyone who doesn't agree that there we have some big environmental problems to deal with. And so our role has changed. We need to really catch up with that. Our role, most people don't want to know about new problems. They want to know about people who are fixing them, how they can be involved, the nuances of them, how things are working out. You wouldn't want to just, I mean, to choose a, a perhaps weird example, but imagine in World War II, if everybody, Hitler invades Poland, 1939. If in 1941, everyone was still saying, this war is terrible, Hitler's invading another place, really, you know, rather than being like, what should we do? You know, where should we go next? How, you know, what options do we have? And I feel like we are in a existential crisis with climate and the biodiversity crisis we should be talking about solutions and that doesn't mean like being blindly optimistic it just means getting to grips with stuff you know the power of these films it strikes me that even doing something very short which is obviously not very short in the making can create movements right and i guess it's through movements that we can really really drive change if there were one piece of work that you've worked on, would it would it be the the film with um, Greta and George that you've seen most in as far as you can possibly clarify and quantify and look at data? But would that be the one thus far where, you know, in recent times you've seen most impact? Or how do you actually measure that impact when you're looking at what you've produced, you and, and the team? I guess I think that would be the, yeah, I, I can't really, I've made films for the BBC that have been, 
used in the EU Parliament to, like I made one about giraffes that help with giraffe trade in endangered animal parts and one about a bat conservationist and that raised his, I mean, all the films that I make really are supposed to just amplify impressive people and their stories. I don't think Greta need, or George needed any amplification, but I think the story that they were telling did. It's interesting what, you know, you, you mentioned that short films can like help create movements. I guess I feel all the, the success of these shorts hasn't made me feel that shorts is the answer. It's mainly just made me feel that we need to stop thinking of films automatically as a length to begin with. I think a story can now live in loads of different formats. I mean, The Octopus Teacher, I don't know if you saw that, that Netflix documentary. So that Pippa Erich and James Reed made that. And it was must have been, I guess, was it 80 minutes? And as a conservation film, it never meant, it. unlike Seaspiracy, it didn't say don't eat octopuses, but I bet more people don't eat octopuses after seeing Octopus Teacher than people don't eat fish after seeing Seaspiracy, which is interesting, right? So it's, it's not explicit because it's about love and connection and the audience comes to their own decisions from it. It doesn't say these kelp forests in South Africa are in danger, we must protect them. But you feel that, you feel that because you've been taken through there. And lots of nature films don't mention conservation things you know, but you don't end up thinking we must protect them. You don't end up thinking I want to change what I do. So I thought that was an incredible example of something that had a huge impact without ever, ever saying it. It let you come to your own conclusions. And I feel that's really aspirational. And I feel uh, having made these very right on films, these short films that kind of, they don't tell people what to do, but they're very sort of overt about saying, here's what you can do. It was a nice wake-up call for me to see that and be and to remember. Totally, because there's so many different vehicles and ways to do it, right? And I think it's also about the emotional context. You know, sometimes a short message in black and white, and, you know, I'm obsessed by data, and, and data can really spell things out, right? You, get, you know, a lot of people just don't know the data around a lot of the environmental issues, shockingly, because it should really be public knowledge, you know, from the youngest age these days, whilst data is a moving number. I think that, that really should be out there the whole time so that people have something to hang on to. But I think there is this emotional connection. And obviously, in your work, you've been... Um, you know, a pioneer of low impact filming and recognized as such. Clearly, that's very important to you. Do you think the industry is going to buy into that as a whole? Because it's a very large industry and it's got very, very different constituent components. What is your sense about the film industry in its entirety going, this is the way forward? Are people really doing something about it? Well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, just to give you, your listeners a bit of background. So, yeah, what, what I call like sort of low carbon high impact filmmaking is where you try and have as big an impact with the film as you can whilst minimizing its environmental footprint especially carbon i probably won't have enough time to go into much detail but because a humpback whale jumped onto me and my friend when we were kayaking uh, and somebody videoed it and it went viral that then gave me the opportunity to go and make a documentary for the bbc about it and because it was my story and it was my production company i could use that as a way of examining how to reduce its footprint so even though it was a film in North America and we had to fly, we had a tiny crew, we took tiny amounts of really lightweight equipment, we left it there. We also worked with local filmmakers. We used a ton of existing material. We didn't use release forms. We had no disposable anythings. We ate veggie. We had a deal where anybody who wanted to do our final post-production work, any companies that worked with us had to have their own green ways of working. All the electricity we used on in that to power our pre-production and our edits was green. 
all these things and we lowered our carbon footprint from the projected one of to by 40 percent and that was pretty easy and but yeah so you, you, you know you could just say like well done but who cares if nobody else does this kind of stuff that and that would be a very valid point if the whole industry just keeps on having a massive carbon footprint and a few independent producers chip away at their tiny individual films that's not going to make it overall difference i think actually it is changing and fast like you have um 1917, the World War I feature drama, uh, that was uh, Albert certificated, which is Albert's the UK created sustainability scheme. And they also made massive reductions to their carbon footprint. And I feel like, and there are lots of other films and TV programs that are doing that similarly. I think it's basically like production health and safety was probably about 20 years ago. I reckon about 20 to 30 years ago, if you were planning a shoot, and you wanted someone to go up a ladder three stories and hang off it, you could probably just ask them to, you know, or if you wanted a child to come in and you wanted to film a child, you could just get a child. Whereas now, quite rightly, if you want someone to climb a ladder, you say, have they done their working at height training? What happens if they fall down? Is this ladder safe? Are we safe? insured, etc. Right? So that's part of your duty of care. And it's a pain in the ass because it was easier just to send someone up a ladder. Like if you have a child, on set you say has the person looking after this child got their certificate is there a, a minder you know are we doing everything right to complete our duty of care to this minor previously the first companies that started doing those things i bet did them voluntarily before there was legislation but i think like doing the right thing by the environment and not unnecessarily wasting loads of carbon or creating loads of plastic pollution is just going to be part of the duty of care of the process. Totally. And it will gain its own momentum, right? Because it'll just not be the way forward and will be frowned upon. And I think that people will be named and shamed. I also think that, you know, the technology, even with the big studios, is so incredible that they're, you know, and younger hires, because it is ground up, will call them out on it and will not want to work for those companies, right? So I think it's gaining a bit of momentum. Just a couple of questions from me. I always ask everyone because it's always about coffee, which I'm obsessed by. <laughs> well, I love the fact that you love coffee and you have worked with and met lots of interesting people, known and unknown, on your travels. Who would you like to have coffee with today and why? Well, I think um, I'd like to have coffee with a Neanderthal person, a person from, uh, is it 50,000 years ago? You know, they were our close relatives and actually many of us carry their dna today and i would love to be able to speak sit down with i don't know if a neanderthal would like coffee i mean they're closely related enough that they would probably act in a similar way on them and just get a perspective from a different species about living on the earth you know and, and to see the world through somebody else's eyes and Oh, I love that. I love that. And my last question today, you've done so much, you've achieved so much. So I'm sure you don't see it like that. And you're, you know, you're, you're probably always onto the next thing. You've got the book coming out. If you were going to make one last film today, what subject would you choose? What place would you choose? What theme would you choose? And why would that? That's so hard because. I know. You, I'm you, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Films that I think ought to be made to help the world. But if you were like, you can just do one last film, I think I'd say, uh, I'll throw that in. I'll just won't make one for me. I'd probably make one about my father and, and the story he was interested in that he never got to tell. So I think I would, if I knew that I didn't get any more, 
I do a personal one about that. And is that a theme you can share or is that going to be a secret project for further down the road? I th- I'm not sure I could do it justice, but it's, you know, when he was a lawyer and he was fascinated by the world's longest ever legal case about somebody who came back from the dead and claimed there was someone who died and he'd done all this research for it. And it and through this story, you could tell the story of another country and how it's changed over the 50 odd years that that case panned out. And I, I think I'd do it so I, I could sort of, it was unfinished business for him. I'd like the neatness of wrapping that up. Oh gosh. Well, listen, Tom Mustel, you are a legend already. Thank you so much. And I can't wait for the next installment and the book, of course. Thank you for being with me today. And I look forward to seeing you very soon indeed. Lovely to meet you, Dee. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on Double Espresso with Dee. I hope you enjoyed this episode and can subscribe and share these fascinating stories. 